What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Once again, I am joined by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, thank you for being back. Absolutely, man. Always a pleasure to be on with you. What's been going on with you the last couple of weeks, dude? I feel like I haven't actually talked to you in quite a while. What have you been up to? Dude, uh, it's been a busy few weeks, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, things have been crazy over here. Uh, we got hit with a hurricane pretty bad. In, I'm, I'm in North Jersey, so we got smashed pretty hard with a hurricane. So that was interesting, to say the least. This is the fourth one I've been through in the last couple of years, and it's really pushing me towards Jeez. going in the direction of moving elsewhere. So I've been looking at some other states, going a little bit further south. But besides that, uh, I just got cleared um, to get back to training. I had had a surgery this summer, and I was not cleared for 12 weeks. So I'm really looking mm. forward to getting back into actually pushing myself and using, you know, a lot of times, especially those that are within fitness, we work in this, we train, we're so used to this being part of our daily grind that having to take a step back from fitness really does not only reinvigorate your passion for it, but it also teaches you a newfound perspective as well as an appreciation for it. So I was able to relate so much more to my clients that have been injured or my clients that can't get in the gym as often as they like or my clients that have to take extenuated, um, you know, periods of time away from training, whether it be because they're a new father or a new mother or because of a family situation, or I've had clients that have had to go travel abroad, uh, you know, previous to COVID and were not able to have the access to gyms. So right. it's been really interesting. So I'm, I'm super fortunate. I'm super uh, thankful that my surgeon and my doctors have finally given me the, the go ahead. Now it's time to get back into doing what I love most. So it's like a rebuilding process. I feel like like a newbie in the gym, but uh, I'm looking forward to the process. Do you feel like you lost a significant amount of tissue during that time or did you maintain pretty well? I'll be honest with you. I was um, very surprised at how well I can maintain. And I think that this is something that many of us have experienced or that we've heard of, but it takes so much less to maintain than it does to stimulate new muscle tissue. And also the extent in which I upped my nutritional competence no, I'm, I'm big into nutrition. I'm dialed in 365, mm -hmm. but I literally didn't deviate away from one meal. You know, I, I had one quote unquote free meal that I still tracked. And this is not something I would suggest for listeners or for, you know, clients. This was an extremely tight uh, nutritional intervention that I did because I knew that I did not have the stimulus of training. Uh, right. So I had to make up for the degradation of muscle protein synthesis. You know, obviously when you're a little bit immobilized, you, uh, your levels of muscle protein synthesis, the peaks and valleys are much uh, less than they would be from a training stimulus, which gives you the mo most robust increase in protein uh, synthesis. So I made up for that and I really utilized different supplemental strategies. I was utilizing BFR, so blood flow restriction, okay. once to twice per day, multiple times a day. Uh, there are some studies on that. Uh, showing uh, satellite cell activation and, and different proliferations uh, to either increase muscle tissue in certain uh, trainees, or in my case, since I'm an advanced trainee, to maintain tissue. I also use EMS, electromuscular uh, stimulation devices, while training with much lighter loads. And then I really put to test a lot of the things that Brad Schoenfeld and Stu Phillips and a lot of these prominent researchers have put out in the last, you know, say five to 10 years that higher rep ranges can really stimulate as much contractile tissue as do, you know, heavier loads and lower rep ranges. And I really had to keep everything in more of that metabolite type system, 25 mm -hmm. to 30 reps so that I didn't stress my system. And so, and, and when I say stress, I mean my muscular skeletal system, because obviously we know that higher volumes and higher rep ranges do incur more taxation on the CNS, 
but I really had to take things easy. I use a very minimum effective dose, but we're seeing more and more that the amount needed to maintain tissue is so much less than people expected. I really didn't get into this literature until we had lockdown with COVID because I'm, I'm based in uh, New Jersey. We were the state that stayed locked down the, the longest. So I had clients, you know, all over the Northeast working out in New York City that couldn't have access to the gym, you know, for almost a full year. So with that, you know, we've seen the literature for that for uh, young individuals that we can maintain tissue on one-ninth the training volume. This is just to maintain. And then older populations that are more susceptible to, say, anabolic resistance, they, they're not able to stimulate protein synthesis as well through, um, you know, protein ingestion, they can maintain on about one-third. So I, I really reeled back my training volume. I worked on more of um, a balanced program. Usually I utilize specialization cycles, but mm -hmm. I was unable to do so. I really couldn't push any, you know, one to two body parts uh, systemically through the course of a mesocycle. And I just utilized other techniques like the BFR, anything I could do to lower the load and just really focus on uh, creating as much mechanical tension with as little load as possible. So remember the body recognizes tension, not necessarily load. So it was really trying to, I don't want to say trick my body because the body's such an adaptive organism, but to try to give my body a similar stimulus as I would previously with much less volume and less, much less weight. Okay. Okay. It's super interesting. And it's cool to hear that you're able to maintain that so well. I know that's one of the biggest fears I get from people like, Hey, I'm traveling for a week and I might not be able to train. It's like, I could do some bad workouts, but like, to be honest, I fucking hate doing a bad workout, like just band and body weight. Hey, like, but like, there is this fear of like, Oh, I missed a training session. Right. Absolutely. And, and I've been, I've been right there with them. Here's the thing. So I was out from full-on training for 12 weeks. So I, I want people to realize it was a substantial right. period of time. The literature that we have, detraining does not occur for two to three weeks. Now, what you will see is if you go on a vacation, we've all been there. You know, previous to this injury, I'd had a knee reconstructive surgery and I had not taken, in 10 years, I had not taken before this time period, before the surgery, I had not taken more than four or five days off, even after that, that knee injury or that knee surgery. So I had not been out of the gym for a substantial period of time, except for like a four to five day deload right. for a substantial period of time. So even I was skeptical, but here's the thing. The first week you lose intermuscular glycogen retention. You lose, mm -hmm. let's think about it theoretically. For every one gram of glycogen you store in muscle tissue comes along two to three grams of water. So that's a few pounds in and of itself. So you'll see your weight fluctuate. You might lose some water retention. You're going to lose some of that sarcoplasmic volume within the cell itself. Uh, you know, from creatine storage and, and saturation, as well as glycogen storage in the cells. But that's just intramuscular. That's fluid retention. That's sodium balance. Those are things that would come back with you just getting a pump. So we have to realize that you're not losing actual muscular contractile tissue. You're not losing right. muscle protein from the actual cells for two to three weeks of no training whatsoever, unless you're essentially immobilized where you don't even have... because. People don't realize this. You know, I'm very big into movement. I'm into energy flux. I was hitting my steps even when I was unable to train. But we see degradations in protein synthesis even when you just reduce your step count. So there are studies in a little bit older populations, 40 to 50s, that when they reduce their steps by a substantial amount, that they saw uh, losses in lean body tissue as well as uh, lowering of muscle protein synthesis levels. So it's just the contractile force of, of the muscles moving. Just staying in motion. So if you're on a vacation and you're moving and you're moving around, you're you're visiting different tourist locations, or you're at the beach, you guys don't have to worry about this. If you want to right. train by all means, like I always suggest to my clients, listen, don't worry about following the actual program that's laid out. Go have some fun. If you're in a 
a, you know, an interesting location. I've been very fortunate. I've traveled throughout the country within the supplement industry for my career. I've been to Gold's Venice. I've been to Metroflex. I've been to, um, you know, all these famous gyms throughout the country, whether it be Texas, Dallas, um, California, all these different places. And so for me, it's, it's not to just stay in line with my programming and to hit a workout. It's to get the experience as well. So I always suggest, Hey, if you're in a, a new area, go check it out. It doesn't have to be that you're following. Just, you can even just go and check out different machines and just, as long as you don't injure yourself and overdo it, there's no harm in getting a workout that isn't a hundred percent on, on plan or on program. Do it for the fun of someone's training is, you know, just an outlet for stress. Sometimes it's a way to just engage and have fun and just to stay active. And then sometimes it's with, or most of the time it should be with the intention of a specific stimulus that you're looking to elicit a specific adaptation, whether that be increasing strength or increasing muscle tissue or increasing, uh, you know, endurance capacity, whatever it may be for your specific goal. But there's other, you know, you're not going to lose anything by going a week and essentially just doing like a deload period right. where you do shortened workouts and you just have fun, you get in and out, you get a pump and you call it a day. Cool. Couldn't agree more. With how you typically train and how you program, are you moving through metabolic neuro and hypertrophy phases or do you kind of have a different approach to that? So I, I have worked, I worked with Alan Cruss. I used to coach right. under him. Uh, so I, I mentored with Alan and I had went through those myself personally with clients. I just didn't find them to be as effective for my clientele. So mm -hmm. I'm just speaking on my experience. A lot of times it was diving into the minutia. So for my um, gen pop clients, some of them just didn't really like that much um, change. But also I found that for others, it was exactly the opposite. They were chasing novelty rather than, you know, chasing the mm -hmm. novelty of stimuli rather than chasing adaptation. And now here's the thing that I always try to get back, back to people, especially when they're newer to training. You need to get good at something to progress in it and to actually elicit an adaptation from it. So if you're constantly changing out exercises and changing through rep ranges, you are, in your mind, you're winning because every week or every couple of weeks, you're going onto a new program and you're making progressions. But those are mostly neurological progressions because we right. know that there's people, I mean, I've talked to Brian Borstein about this, who's an advanced trainee. There are times that he's progressed on his in his training for five to six weeks on a new movement. So mm -hmm. say his mesocycle is six to eight weeks. That was only one to two weeks of actual progression on the movement that was actually eliciting an increase in, in actual muscle tissue. And now we know right. tissue doesn't grow that quickly, especially when you're advanced. So I like keeping in longer blocks. I like utilizing, you know, specific key indicating lifts where we progress over multiple mesocycles. And mm -hmm. then from there, We'll change out accessories, but I will, it really comes back to a client's biofeedback, but I like a little bit more of a mixed modal progression. So not just specific phases, but I might mix like a hypertrophy phase with some metabolic work at the end where I might uh, utilize, you know, daily undulating periodization where some days are strength focused and some days are more in the hypertrophy range focus, but I don't utilize just exclusively, you know, neurological phases then, or neurological or strength phases then hypertrophy phases, and then metabolic phases. And I have utilized it in the past. I just didn't see as much of the benefit from it, personally. Super interesting, man. I know that's where we're at, kind of, Andrea. And Andrea is the other outdoor coaching team and myself, kind of figuring out what of this we want to take and apply, and what of it is like, hey, this might be a little bit too much variation. Or for some people, straight up, maybe this is too overwhelming to like, yo, I just got this figured out, and we're already changing phases, and everything I'm chasing is completely different. And I have 15 second rest periods and I hate that, <laughs> but yeah, you know what? That was the biggest feedback was on some of the systemic phases uh, from uh, metabolite work were like the Geronda eight by eights or the incomplete rest and stuff. 
And a lot of my clients, they, they liked that it was different, but it also really didn't match. Like we were, I was phasing them in and out, but they didn't really understand. And even with me going into the complexities of it and really explaining it to them, they're like, listen, I have a couple of days in the, in the gym a week. I just want to get the best of all both worlds uh, type mm-hmm. of programming. And I know like if you speak to Cass, some of the guys at N1 who I have the greatest respect for, I mean, I've went to seminars with everyone you could think of from your Eugene Tios to your uh, Joe Bennett's, Ben Pakulski, I've been in person training with him. So I've seen a gambit of different training styles and methodologies. And what you just said there is, is really poignant because you take what's useful and discard what's useless. And here's the thing, just because it works for a certain subsect of people, whether it be a group or a coach and their clients, doesn't mean it's automatically going to apply to your others. So I coach such a wide array of people. I coach everyone from people that have been on the Olympia stage for bodybuilders to like your soccer mom and grandmother. So it's like, I, I really, ad- I'm very adaptable. So what I utilize with a lot of my lifestyle clients is so far different than what I utilize with a lot of uh, my um, competitors. So what I really try to do is I have principles that I will mold and apply to different individuals, but there's never, I'm not set on one type of programming style. I'm not set on one methodology and I definitely don't have a protocol. So it's not like, Hey, I'm going to take someone and phase them in and out of these phases always the same way with every clientele because I just don't feel that the body's, the body's an adaptive organism, but everyone responds differently, especially psychologically. And I think that's something that a lot of coaches discount. They don't realize that the physiological and the psychological are intertwined. They cannot be separated. So if someone doesn't like what they're doing, it doesn't matter if it's optimal for them from a biomechanical perspective, from a hypertrophy, like a mechanism of a hypertrophy uh, setup. It doesn't matter if it's the best movement pattern um, for, you know, you know, certain activation uh, patterns, that doesn't matter if they're not aligned with it mentally. I couldn't agree more, man. Uh, something I wanted, that's just something I wanted to pick your brain on because I was interested to see what you had taken from that. And I think, again, like the same thing, I have so much respect for N1. But again, like as a coach, you have to understand, like, because I, to my understanding, that's mostly where that methodology came from. But N1, they mostly coach coaches, right? And like when you as a coach are like, fuck, I love this, this is dope. Whereas we have to understand, then like you taking that and okay, I love this, but I'm applying this to this busy ass mom who has all this going on. Like it's the context is so different. Um, 100%. And I actually had to learn that I've done probably about 25 or 30 certifications over the past eight to 10 years. And early on in my coaching career, what I did was I would take, I I would go to these seminars, I would go to these lectures and I would get these certifications and I'd be like, all right, well, I want to apply it in practice. And that was great because I really do think that the best way to learn something is to apply it to yourself and then apply it to your clientele and to teach someone. So you learn something, then you would teach it and it reinforces that learning pattern to you. However, a lot of times I would take these methodologies and I made the mistake of applying them to everyone. And, and that was a mistake. So 2013 and 2015, I did that with a lot of people and I didn't see the response. Now, not everyone responded and maybe the average person, you know, the majority of people responded favorably, but I did have those clients that just physiologically or psychologically, they didn't respond as I wanted to. And we always right. have to take a step back. You have to realize, and I think this is a mistake of a lot of people in this industry, a lot of us, and I've done this myself, so I'm going to admit to this. A lot of us make content, not for the clients that we're looking to reach. We do it for the people in our industry. We do it for the interactions with the people we respect. And I've been very guilty of that over the years. I've written oh, for men's fitness and different, different articles. And sometimes I'm like, well, you know, Jeremiah would love this. So, you know, let me put this out or, or someone that I respect in this industry, but that doesn't speak to the client that you're actually working with. And the more and more that I do this and the more years that I stay in the trenches, I realize that 
despite me loving physiology, uh, biochemistry, and all these different nuanced topics, it doesn't matter what I know because knowledge is nothing without mileage and application. So really what I, I try to bring home to people, and when I have my own clients that are coaches themselves, I tell them, listen, don't worry about setting up specific protocols or taking this knowledge. You should educate people because I really do believe that an educated client is a compliant client. However, if you do have someone that they have no interest in the mechanisms behind what you're doing, make right. it so that they follow the program and you just, the fundamentals, the, the bare basics and the um, base of the pyramid is really compliance and adherence. So make sure that they follow up on that first before getting into the nuances. I always say, Keep it simple until it needs to get complex. I couldn't agree more, man. I think of one client who I worked with her about two years ago, and she really, really struggled to see any results. And right from the gate, it was like, hey, we're going to go with a slower carb approach. I want to do all these things to like try to adjust your insulin sensitivity. And it was just so complex, right? And she really struggled. She came back about six months ago and what she's lost, 25 pounds, I believe, since then. Um, That's awesome. But my approach to this has been, I'm literally going to try to keep this as simple as possible and like as little work for her as possible. So it's been, we've like dumbed it way down, but her results have been so much better. And it's again, like so much of that is just the way you're communicating these things. Right. And maybe don't feed everyone with fire hose, but I agree. That's been one of the hardest things for me to get a grasp on as well, because like, you're so excited about all this shit to learn or like, I listen to this podcast with Brandon and I learned so much stuff about all these complex topics. Okay. I have to apply this to everyone where again, I, sometimes that's more detrimental than anything else. Absolutely. This is why it's the constant evolution. My friend, we, we get better through the application process. We get better through uh, the most that I've learned. Like I said, I've done about 25 to 30 certifications in different courses and I spend over six figures in my education just on this besides my, my college education. Yet the most that I've learned is working with people. And the hundreds of clients that I work, I've worked with over the years, they have been my biggest learning opportunity, both on what to continue to do and then what to avoid or discard from my, my skill set or my tool, toolkit. I love it. All right. So we have a Q&A here. And we are already pretty deep into this. So we better get started with some of these questions. Um, first one I got for you. For someone who is quad dominant and is trying to focus on building slash developing glutes and hamstrings, what would you recommend as quote unquote must to maximize gains? Okay, so this is a convoluted topic because there is never going to be one movement pattern. There is never going to be one exercise that I include as a must. Right. What my opinion on this would be that we need to put you through a fully lengthened position and a fully shortened position. And based on your biomechanics, your mobility, your structure, um, your tendencies, and also your preferences, we need to pick movement patterns that put you through all of those, those two ranges of motions. So with that being said, if you are someone that you're well suited to squat and you want to put yourself through a lengthened phase of the movement, by all means, squat could be a, a good uh, programming pattern for you. However, if you're someone that you do, that does not align well for you, I'm six foot two. I know Jeremiah is quite tall. I guarantee a barbell back squat is probably not the best movement for you because I know right. for myself, it would be, a, it'd be a hack squat. So when we're looking at say looking to develop glutes specifically or hamstrings specifically, we're going to look at things like, you know, for some people it's going to be an RDL variation, you know, put them through a fully lengthened position, really get into that stretch position. For others, it's going to be a seated leg curl. I prefer with a lot of my, my clients. Now, is this a female or is this a male asking? Female. Okay. So for a lot of my female clients, I start them with a seated leg curl variation because that is, has been shown even in the literature to be most conducive to putting the most amount of uh, 
mechanical tension on the muscle itself. Uh, however, it's going to be person dependent. So there are no, you know, there are no one size fits all protocols. You need to find movement patterns that put you into uh, the best positions to reach those ranges of motion. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about exercise selection and execution, right? Like if we look at it, um, and I think just the exercise selection or the execution of said movements is the biggest thing people mess up, right? If we look at it, okay, when we're training glutes, the primary function of our glutes is going to be hip flexion and extension, basically, or that's what, that's what the glutes are going to be acting on, right? Whereas if we're more quad dominant, then we're probably, so basically think like, are you bending more at the hip or are you bending more at the knee? So for example, if we look at like you're doing a split squat, so there's a couple different variations of that. If we did like a front foot elevated split squat where your back foot was just on the floor, you would get a, and if you imagine like what that would look like as you're sitting down on that movement, you would get a lot of bend at that front knee, but you wouldn't get a lot of movement through your hips, right? So that's going to be a lot more quad dominant movement. Your quads are acting a lot more on your knees. Whereas if we did like, okay, now my front foot is going to be on the floor. My rear foot is going to be elevated. I'm really going to push my hip back into that until I run out of hip flexion. So I can't bend on my hips anymore. Maybe there's not as much. And really typically for like a glute focused rear foot elevated split squat, your knee is going to get to about a 90 degree bend or even like a glute dominant leg press, right? Where your feet are a little bit higher and closer together. Um, it's going to stretch the glute more, but there's not as much bend in your knees, right? And that's again, going to tax the glutes a lot more. And quads a little bit less. So again, I would look at the way that you're executing movements first and foremost, and even your exercise selection. Like a lot of people have heard, as you mentioned, like a barbell back squat is a great movement for glutes. And for some people it might be, but also you have to look at like, what does your squat specifically look like? Is it like, Hey, I can mm -hmm. stay super upright, but I'm getting a ton of bend in my knees. Okay. That's probably going to be more quad dominant. Right. And we would be better off like for a squat pattern, maybe doing something like that roof elevated split squat I mentioned, or like a glute dominant leg press or something along those lines. And I would definitely, of course, include a hinge in there as well. But again, looking at, I think just looking at that, like <laughs> to really simplify it, am I bending more at the hips or more at the knees? And we want to focus even on like the squat and lunge patterns, like more of that movement is coming from the hips than the knees. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So I'm going to hit you with my first one. Uh, what are some of the things you take into consideration when putting a client into a surplus to gain mass? And then also to add on to that question, they said, also, what rate of gain would you suggest? All right. So when we're going into a building phase, typically I like to already have someone's maintenance established, of course. And I don't like to put people in a big surplus right out of the gate. Typically I aim for just like about 200 calories depending on the size of the individual, 100 to 200 calories over their maintenance intake. Now from there, I would say, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. More and more I've drifted away from we have to hit this rate of gain every week. For a stickler, I was like, hey, we have to see 0.25 to 0.5% of body weight gain per week. Now more and more I just focus on, okay, where is biofeedback at? That's such an important piece of this. Is your training performance good? Is your recovery good? Is your sleep good? Um, are we seeing you progress consistently in the logbook, right? Those are just a couple of the biggest things that I put a focus on. And I, I again think people can get too fixated on, okay, am I gaining at X, am I gaining X amount of weight per week? But the thing is like, we can't force feed your way into muscle growth, right? It comes from like the quality of your training. And I think that weirdly people get so detail focused in a cut, but then when it comes time to build, people get pretty lackadaisical and like, okay, I have 3000 calories, but then it's like, Hey, you're training at 8am. 
maybe drink like a protein shake before and after. And okay, I'm going to save like 2000 of these calories for, so I can just go out and just smash food at night. And again, it's like, Hey, we're more or less still sending your body the signal that most of the day you're in a deficit. Then you just have this massive influx of calories, like 12 hours later, right? Like it's not a great way to shift your body composition. So I, I think first and foremost, one thing I try to stress upon my clients is building muscle is probably harder <laughs> I mean, if we look at like rate of gain versus rate of loss, it's definitely harder than it is to lose fat. Thus, like all these things within your nutrition, nutrient timing, I typically push people to like, hey, we probably need to be more focused on this even than if our goal was simply to maintain muscle mass and lose fat, right? So I think that's something that often gets overlooked. Um, and yeah, again, the biofeedback, looking at logbook consistently progressing, I do still like to see a slow rate of gain. But typically, I'll extrapolate that across the course of a month. Have we been gaining about, uh, I typically say about 0.2 to 0.4% of body weight over the course of a month. But I mean, even then there is like on a weekly basis over the course of a month, because often we'll see like someone jumps up two pounds in a week, and then weight stays more or less similar for a couple of weeks. But then across a month, it all averages out. But I mean, even then, there's so many factors as far as like, okay, in your progress pictures, can we visually see you getting more jacked? And again, performance is great. You're consistently hitting these PRs and these movements have been progressing for months, but we're not seeing weight creep up quite as quickly as we want. Okay, well, probably okay with that. That's my take on it. What are your thoughts there? All right, so first and foremost, I'm very similar to you. I'm establishing a maintenance intake for a client before any phase. You know, so I'm, even if it's just a two to four week primer where I'm just mm -hmm. making sure I get them an energy balance, I want to see what their weight is doing and where it stabilizes at. So I have more of a homeostatic baseline of where their body feels comfortable at and what caloric intake that is. Because a lot of people go from these, they go from a dieting diet phase right into a building phase, or they go from a building phase right into a diet. And the numbers that they are they're at are either artificially inflated from being in a gaining phase or artificially deflated from being in uh, a deficit. So there's so much more that goes into determining what amount of a calorie surplus I'm going to take with a client as their body and metabolism are both extremely adaptive. So just like we've spoken on previous podcasts, as you diet, your metabolism you know, adapts downward, the same thing happens when you, it adapts upward when you eat more. So we see, and I've seen this personally with a lot of my clients, that we see an upregulation activity, especially in meat, that causes some individuals to burn a lot more of the calories that they take in when they're in an excess of calories. So if I was to give you a blanketed approach and say, I generally will put a client in a two to 400 calorie surplus, what's two to 400 calories for one individual will not be the same for someone else. Because if I was to raise someone, say 400 calories, and one individual that is a 400 calorie surplus, they would gain at a pretty substantial rate, close to a pound per week. However, another client might burn two to 300 more calories of that off. So they're only in a 100 calorie surplus. So this is why when I first start with someone, I put them in a very moderate surplus and it really depends on their advancement in training. So what I mean by that is if you are newer to training or you're, you're less you're much far further away from your genetic ceiling, meaning say that you've only been in the gym a few years, but you haven't really done things properly. You haven't gained a, a ton of tissue and you're still haven't optimized your programming. You come to me, I'm going to get you into a maintenance phase. I'm going to make sure that I have you at that homeostatic base point. So I know that, Hey, you know, so-and-so maintains their weight at 3000 calories at this macronutrient ratio and their body fats at a good holding point where we can now start to accrue tissue from there. I'm going to look towards 
putting them into a more substantial surplus if they're newer. If I see that they have more tissue that they have the potential to gain, because when you're newer to training and it's, you know, training is more of a stimulus for gaining muscle, you have a, a larger ceiling that you could reach to. So going at a quicker rate of gain is going to be more conducive. However, if you're close to that ceiling, if you're, you know, someone like Jeremiah or myself or someone that's advanced, we have a much, a much lower ceiling to which how much more tissue we can gain. So we have to realize, like he said, we cannot force feed muscle. So any additional calories that you're taking in that are more than what your body can synthesize in muscle tissue is going to go towards the accrual of fat tissue. So that's where I would take more of a moderate approach. So I generally with my more intermediate to advanced trainees or clients, I'll utilize about a five to 10% um, surplus. Whereas with my newer you know, um, clients, I'll utilize maybe between 10 and 20% surplus. Now, yeah. keep in mind, I'm saying these percentages, but that surplus is only if it's eliciting a weekly average weight gain that, that shows that they're at that amount of a surplus. So it's all about tracking to see how these this person is responding to this certain caloric intake. And once I get a client into a surplus and very into biofeedback, we've went through my coaching model, you know, previously mm -hmm. on the first episode that I was on with this. So I'm making sure that they're checking off all the boxes on the daily because muscle gain is a much slower process than is fat loss. So it's much harder to see, especially in terms of visually, you're not going to be seeing it week to week. So we have to make sure that weight is slowly trending up and is going up, you know, in, in, appropriate rate of gain, but isn't too much. Because if I see someone that's gaining a bunch of weight every single week, I know that most of that is, is fat tissue or glycogen or water. It isn't muscle tissue. I'm making sure I'm really paying attention to their training and making sure they're progressing, especially in key indicator lifts. I always tell clients, it's not that being, you know, you should be getting stronger through the course of a mesocycle, especially when you're in a gaining phase. It doesn't mean strength is automatically going to lead to muscle growth. However, right. it is a good indicator that you're progressively overloading. Then I'm looking at, you know, how are their clothes fitting? You know, what is their visible progress? Although that will be the longest and hardest to see, I want to utilize certain metrics like, you know, progress photos to see, you know, are certain body parts that we're specializing on, are they seeing any substantial improvements, whether it be in progress in the gym, performance, you know, visually, any of those things. And then for my rate of gain, I'm very similar to you. I generally target 0.25 to 5.5% uh, rate of gain per week because I really don't see anything more beneficial than going higher than that. So, so for instance, let's, let's give an example. Think about if you were to gain a half pound per week. Most would consider that a pretty moderate rate of gain. But if you were to gain that, that would be two pounds per month. And if you stayed in a surplus for the course of the year, you know, over 52 weeks, that would be 26 pounds of new tissue. I'll be honest with you. I have never seen an intermediate or advanced training gain 26 pounds of pure muscle tissue. So you have to keep in context that a lot of times when people hear these very modest rate of gains, 0.25, so 0.25 rate of gain on someone that is, um, you know, 200 pounds would be that 0.5, you know, pounds per week. That still isn't going to be all muscle. So we're going to see these very slow and steady progress in terms of scale weight, but that's why we have to really focus on other factors. How are your energy levels? How is your libido, especially if you've just been in a dieting phase? Where are these other subjective markers? What's your blood work looking like? How is your response to food? 
And then utilizing, like you said, a nutrient timing approach. I really think that nutrient timing is something that's kind of, you know, there was some research on it that showed that it wasn't of the highest importance. However, it never said that it was detrimental. So I feel like a lot of people threw the baby out with the bathwater. And and I'm someone that's a very big fan of nutrient timing because there is literature that shows that it is beneficial. It's just not as beneficial and not as crucial as we thought it was. It is in a one hour window. It's not a window, it's a garage door. It's six to 24 hours rather than just one hour, you know, 30 minutes to one hour post-workout. However, I always tell my clients, if it's not going to hurt you and not going to hold you back and it's easy to do and could potentially help you, why wouldn't? It's not why shouldn't we, it's why wouldn't we? So it's about changing that that mental perspective around things. If you could get a bolus of protein and carbohydrates post-workout to help with increasing muscle protein synthesis, leveraging off the fact that you just went through a resistance training session, it helps rebuild some of that broken down muscle tissue, you know, stop the process of muscle uh, protein breakdown, which is catabolic. Why wouldn't we do that? So that is where I would preferentially put most of the nutrients around the peri-workout window, especially that's when we see that you're most insulin sensitive. And then from there, I would utilize more of a nutrient timing approach based on chrononutrition. So I'm very into, for the clients that it does fit into their lifestyle, I'm gonna leverage more of the insulin sensitivity and postprandial metabolism that we see early in the day as compared to later in the day. So as the day gets longer, especially if they're not training late into the evening, I'm gonna have most of my calories, most of my carbohydrates especially, earlier in the day and around that peri-workout window. And then as it gets later on in the day, I'm going to be lowering that that uh, caloric, um, you know, allotment of carbohydrates to, right. uh, the diet, just because we see that later on in the day, melatonin and, uh, insulin are counter-regulatory hormones. So once melatonin starts getting secreted, especially later on in the evening, we become more resistant to insulin. So that's where your, your nutrient partitioning is going down. You're not having as, as great of glucose metabolism. You're going to have higher postprandial uh, blood glucose readings. So if you're in a surplus, that's when it is, like you said, nutrient timing is really especially important. You know, it's, it's important year round, but especially when you're eating in a surplus of calories, because insulin resistance is not a condition brought on by high carbohydrates or just one macronutrient. It's from an excess of calories. So that's where you're most susceptible to suffering from those things. So that's, that's really where I, I look at some of this stuff. That's typically how I typically describe it to clients is, Hey, over the course of one training session, is it a big deal if like you didn't do a great job fueling yourself pre-workout or like that post-workout meal wasn't optimal? No, but like, okay, you signed a six month contract, you're training four days per week. So fuck, what is that? (laughs) Whatever, whatever 16 times six comes out to, uh, like 96 workouts. Holy Lord, you're off 64. Damn. Okay. Anyways. Uh, I shouldn't put myself in a position to do math on the podcast. Um, 64 workouts. Okay. So over the course of that, like if we have 64 training sessions where you're super well fueled and recovery is optimal versus 64 training sessions where you're pretty mediocrely fueled. So you don't, can't train quite as well. Recovery isn't quite as good as you could be like over the course of six months. That's, that is going to add up to a decent difference. It's not like the most important thing. I don't want you focusing on this or all over like your overall macros for the day. But again, it's something that a lot of people that want the best possible results should consider. Um, I would ask for you as well. One more thing on this topic. So if you had an intermediate to advanced client, they are seeing like biofeedback is in a great place. They are seeing like consistent progressions in the logbook, but they're not hitting that desired rate of gain. How quick are you going to, are you going to bump their calories? 
to just make sure, hey, we are hitting this rate again as well? Or is it a situation where like, hey, everything else is on point? Or is it like after three weeks of no gain, hey, we probably should still bump? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So what I do with scale weight averages, and this works both in fat loss phases, but especially in gaining phases, is I want to see not only a weekly average, but if someone stalls out, say from you know week, we're eight weeks into a, a gaining phase, and from week eight to nine to 10, they're at the same body weight, but they're progressing in their training. They're obviously progressively overloading. They feel good. Their biofeedback is, is improving, or it's staying at least the same. That's where I'm looking to, all right, well, let's look at making changes in two to four week increments. Let's not jump the gun. I would rather be, you know, sometimes people are a little bit too proactive, you know, in terms of their, their wanting to guess ahead. And that's where I've seen in gaining phase, and I'll tell you this from experience, there's been times that I've put someone in a surplus, and it almost, it's almost like it doesn't show up for a few weeks. Right. And then all of a sudden, one week, you know, they haven't gained, they haven't gained. And then one week, they're up three pounds. And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I was expecting this to be a three to 500 calorie surplus. The last three weeks, you haven't gained at all. However, now, you know, we're, we're three or four weeks down the road, you gained the three pounds that I expected but it was all in one week. And that's where I really start digging into things because sometimes it's subconscious aspects. So it's, oh, you know what? The last three weeks at work, I was doing, you know, dual roles and I was really on my feet and I wasn't paying attention to it. Or, you know, it was stuff that we were unable to track. And I do track steps with clients, but we have to realize that accelerometers and these tracking devices don't pick on, on every aspect of me. So someone's, right. someone's just overly jittery. They're, they're really moving. So, you know, a lot and they're burning off a ton of calories, but that doesn't mean that just because in the beginning of a titration up of calories that they are doing that, that they're going to continue doing that. Sometimes it's the, the first influx of higher food, they get a rapid spontaneous increase in movement. And then from there, you know, they start to lower that amount of movement just because of lifestyle changes. Say it's a different season. We go into the winter, they're a little bit less active. So it's really based on the individual. I'm not going to jump the gun on just one week or a two week, uh, you know, stall, especially if things are going according to plan in terms of training performance, in terms of biofeedback, their photos look great. They're looking, you know, fuller in their photos week to week. So I'm seeing some type of visual progress. It's not mm -hmm. that they've stalled out completely. And then also I have to keep in mind that you said intermediate to advanced. So some advanced individuals, they do want to force feed that rate again. And sometimes I have to pull them back and say, listen, you're progressing just just great. It's the same concept. Sometimes people take this, this method of progressive overload and think that they have to be increasing weight on the bar every single week, week after week. And that's where we have to really, you know, kind of pull back the layers of the onion and realize progressive overload can lead to increases in muscle tissue, but increases in muscle tissue lead to progressive overload as well. They're an intrinsically linked scenario. So it's not just like, you know, a lot of times people will take a certain model of hypertrophy and they'll say, well, you have to put more weight on the bar to grow muscle. And then other people will say, the reason you could put more weight on the bar was because you gained muscle. But if you took the first progression and said you had to put on, you know, weight on the bar each and every week to gain muscle, the weeks that you didn't put weight on the bar, you technically, you know, theoretically, you wouldn't have gained muscle. Whereas other people are saying the reason you cannot put weight on the bar each and every week is because you do not accrue tissue that quickly. So it's different sides of the coin. It's a different perspective. If we look at like the Mike Israels who would say, you know, let's progress, whether it be volume sets, things of that sort versus like a Brian Miner and Eric Helms, they're saying that progressive overload is induced as a result of gaining tissue. It comes along mm -hmm. the ride. It isn't just a sole dictator of muscle, you know, progress or muscle uh, accrual. So really what I try to get people to look at is it's the averages over time. And that's with all things. 
you know, I try to peel it back when a, a client doesn't understand this. I say, listen, it isn't about you being perfect, quote unquote, in a day on your diet. It's about being consistently adherent over time, over a week, over a month. It's the same thing with accruing tissue. It's a slow process. So if I see someone installed out three or four weeks, we're going to make increases. I'm going to ask about their hunger. But there are times in a gaining phase where I have someone that their weight has, has seemed to stall out. Their training is going well. All their biofeedback looks great, but they don't have a great appetite. So it's like, why am I going to increase their food and potentially you know, cause a negative ramification on their biofeedback next week, whether it be from di a digestive perspective, a fullness perspective, or an energy, you know, turning from having good energy levels to being lethargic because they're full all day. So it really comes down to what's fit for the individual and really basing that biofeedback both on what you see on a week to week basis, as well as your experience with that individual. I love it. Cool. I think we crushed that one. Um, next I have, what do your peak week protocols for a photo shoot or a bodybuilding competition usually look like? And I imagine this could vary quite a bit. Absolutely. So I'm going to, I have, like I said, I don't have protocols. I have principles. However, when it comes to peak week, I, I want to throw out some broad based generalities. Peak week is not magic. And if you're not in shape, you're not ready beforehand. There is no amount of manipulations that are going to make you get magically into shape. And that's what a lot of people, that's a misconception that a lot of people have is that, you know, for, in my perspective, I would rather have someone 95% and not make many deviations than have them 80 and shoot for a hundred and potentially land either at a hundred or at, you know, below where they were previously. So it's all about being in shape previous to the week itself. That last mm -hmm. week should be about lowering systemic fatigue it should be essentially a deload. We should be able to pull right. back on training volume. We should be able to cut back on muscle damage. We should be able to lower inflammation. We should be able to focus on rest, recovery, getting better sleep quality, lowering cortisol. I'm trying to feed someone up that whole week. And from there, I'm really looking to just get them to what their best look was and maybe top them off just a little bit cosmetically, meaning with a little bit more carbohydrates, fill out the muscles, make them feel relaxed. But really, you should be walking around. I, my philosophy on contest prep in general, whether it be you know, a prep for a photo shoot or for a contest itself, is that I like having my clients ready weeks early. And I essentially reverse diet them. I walk them back up, their calories back up into the show. So any day of the week, you know, one to two weeks prior to the competition, I would be able to essentially get them on stage. If they put on a tan, they'd be able to walk on stage. And that's really my philosophy. There are some other more nuanced approaches there. There have been certain clients that I've waterloaded with. Uh, there are mm -hmm. clients, what I will say is the only thing that I never do is completely cut out water and I never completely cut out sodium or, or manipulate electrolytes to the point that there would be a deficiency. I think that right. A, coaches that do that, they're really taking a huge gamble on their client's health and B, they don't understand physiology because so, um, carbohydrates follow sodium and water. So in order to fill out a muscle from like a carb loading perspective, you need both sodium because there's sodium dependent glucose transporters in the gut to actually pull carbohydrates in and get them into the muscle cell, as well as we need water because for every gram of glycogen that's stored comes approximately three grams of water. So what I really find is, is a myth or a, a, an aspect that's highly promoted within you know, prepping industries is that you could carb up and, and, you know, fill out and dry out on the same day. And that's not how the body works. You need to carb up and you, you, you dry out on another day. They're two separate processes because if you're trying to rid your body of water and you're trying to load your body with carbohydrates and with glucose, you couldn't do those things effectively at the same time. And the only times you can 
are with pharmaceutical grade diuretics. And that's where we have some of the bodybuilding war that comes into play where people will, you know, say, well, Friday night I had my, you know, I've seen guys do a burger and fries and they cut their, their water, you know, 16 to 24 hours out and they're able to, to look dry and hard the next day. Listen, if you're right. a natural competitor, or you're not using pharmaceuticals, that is, you know, pharmaceutical diuretics specifically, that is not going to be an effective method for you. You're going to end up flat and looking like a pancake the next day. So it really is about being in shape. First and foremost, you need to be in shape prior to that week. If not, push back the photo shoot or, you know, look for a different show date. I'm a big fan of making a window when I want to be ready. So with my competitors, mm -hmm. with my clients, I'll give them a window and I'll say, listen, say it's September, you know, because we're in September right now. Instead of shooting for, you know, September 18th, you know, Saturday, September 18th, let's shoot for between a window of the 18th to the 2nd of October. Those are, mm -hmm. you know, three weekends in which you could jump on stage. And we make sure that there's, there's shows within that time period or there's shoots within that time period so that it's not as much pressure and you don't have to force the body to do anything. Because what a lot of people don't realize, this the same kind of concept with dieting, if you force your body in one direction, there's a slingshot effect. A lot of times it rebounds in the opposite direction. So if you're forcing right. your way to get in shape, you're forcing things like, like completely cutting out your water or you know, taking you know, rid of sodium you're going to have a negative rebound and not just in the case of rebounding in terms of gaining weight, like we've spoken about before, but you're also going to be, let's say for instance, sodium, if you completely cut out sodium, your aldosterone levels uh, increase, meaning you're going to hold more water because your body sees that as a survival mechanism. If you cut out water, your body's going to start holding water because it's trying to uh, preserve hydration. So all these things that a lot of people do, these mistakes that people make, they're actually counterintuitive to how the body works mechanistically and physiologically. So they think they're doing something of benefit to improve their look, and they're actually causing more detriment both health-wise as well as to what their physique looks like. So it is really person-specific. There are some clients that I will utilize a front load, which would be in the beginning of the week, and then I actually taper down their carbohydrates as we we go into the show or the shoot. There are other people that mm -hmm. I use more of a backloading approach, but mostly I use a reverse dieting approach where I increase their carbohydrates the, first, the last couple of weeks going into the event itself so that I see a baseline. And previous to that reverse dieting approach, I've already been utilizing one to two day refeeds with them and monitoring their biofeedback. So I'm looking at what they look like in the morning without any carbohydrates. I'm looking at what they look like pre-workout, post-workout with a higher bolus of carbohydrates in their system. I'm looking at every day within that refeed. So day one, what do they look like with this amount of carbohydrates in their system, both morning, uh, pre and post-workout, and at night. I'm looking at the next day. What do they look like in the morning? Then I'm looking at day two. What do they look like at those same times? On day three, I'm looking at day four. So when is their best look? Is it after one day of refeeding? Is it after two days? There are a lot of individuals that I see it's after four days, and by four days, I mean they did two-day refeed, and then two days later, they looked their best. So the day after the refeed, they kind of float off some of that water retention that they had from the increase in carbohydrate, and the next morning, they wake up their best. So what does that tell me? That tells me that I should load them with carbohydrates on, say, um, I should load them on a Tuesday, Wednesday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday morning, they wake up and they look their best. Right. So it's very person specific and it really can vary based on the individual. But the biggest lesson that I would take home here is be ready early and then you don't have to play with as many variables and you'll be able to have more fun with this because you'll be more confident in the look that you're bringing and you won't have to go through all these extremes where you're forcing your body to dry out. You're forcing your body to, to get that last bit of fat off or any of those extremist methodologies.
No, absolutely. And I think one of the most important things as you touched on over and over is just try to be ready early. Like anytime I map out a photo shoot prep for someone, I'm going to add at least four extra weeks to that timeline again. And it's like, Hey, worst case, we're ready early. We reverse diet into it and you're in a very good place there. But the worst place to be is like scrambling, like, fuck, I'm not ready. This isn't the last week. Okay. Like hopefully the peak week saves me because that's not going to work out very well. I will say, I don't think this is, this is anything I'm really as experienced with, with you. I do clients that I think it's necessary. I found for some clients as well, like it's a mom doing her first photo shoot. If I hit her with, Hey, we're going to do this, 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 this for peak week. It's like, fuck, this is so much stress. And like, Hey, let's just try to keep stress as low as possible. Let's try to keep this as simple as possible. So, um, typically what I'll do is try to establish a baseline going into the week for sodium, potassium, water, just so we can make sure there's not any massive fluctuations in that. And I don't, I don't like to play with those things much. Let's just try to keep these all very similar. Again, like make sure that your levels of sodium are like falling off a cliff all of a sudden now that, because typically then you want to let week as well say, Hey, let's try to avoid any foods that could cause any type of digestive issues, more bloating. Um, so like cruciferous veggies, things of that nature. And then we'll just try to more or less like, Hey, let's try to keep sodium, potassium, water at very similar levels. So there's nothing there that could again, like dramatically affect your aldosterone levels or anything of that nature. So we're not retaining water going into the shoot. Um, I've done like, so I know, you know, my client, Jeff Hain, like for him, he was ready for his photo shoot a couple weeks early at the most recent one we took him through. So we did similar to what you described there with like, um, kind of a front loading approach. We'd have him shoot pictures morning evening every day and kind of like trying to find his best look and then okay that's how we're tweaking carbs day to day until we come to the total where okay this is where it seems to be where you look the best and that's what we're going to take into the shoot i would say if there's whereas i have a couple clients who like did photo shoots a couple months ago and they both aligned pretty well where they're both like about to do their shoot this week and it was like three weeks ago like hey my photographer hit me up they wanted to know if i wanted to do another shoot so it's kind of like okay let's just tighten you up just a bit these last couple of weeks it's kind of a last minute thing and then hey we'll carb load like two days before dry out and then go into the shoot but yeah i more or less that's the approach we'll typically take yeah i always say less is more yeah when it comes to these things especially if you're ready early it's not you know i want to keep variables as similar to how they've been and what you've been successful with you have to keep in mind that if you've already been successful if you already look your best there is no, there's going to be extra, no extra bonus points for doing some sexy, you know, extra methods or, or trying things that you haven't utilized in your, in your actual prep itself or within your diet itself. That's the one thing I always caution people against when they do that, like Friday night before photo shoot or before show a cheat meal, or they do a burger and fries because right. that's like the bodybuilding lore. If you haven't been digesting those foods, you're taking a huge gamble, both digestively, right. you're taking a huge gamble on skewing your look, not feeling well having all these issues, bloating, um, all these different digestive issues, and not knowing what the outcome is going to be. However, if you've been utilizing a 300-gram refeed twice per week for the last six weeks of your diet, you know more or less how your body's going to respond to that. So it's a more safe and controlled approach where you might not hit 100%, but if you can be 95%, I'd rather that than taking a gamble and coming out 75 or 80% You know, the day that's most important. Absolutely. Cool. How much time do you have here, man? I know we're already at about an hour. You got a good like 30 minutes. Cool. Cool. All right. What do you got for me next, dude? All right. So this was a uh, pretty general. It just says carbs are fats for building muscle. <laughs> so what I would say is for overall health, we need both. Right. And as Brandon says, a healthy body is a responsive body. So I mean, for 
production of important hormones like testosterone, we're going to need some baseline level of that. So typically, I want to make sure clients, um, if at all possible, are going to have at least 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound of body weight of fat is typically the number that I throw out there. Past that point, I definitely think it does make sense to bias a lot more of the calories coming in to carbs versus fats. I mean, if we look at, okay, I want to get jacked, I want to build muscle. And then we dig into the energy systems, right? We know that most of your training from like 20 to most of your sets within like a bodybuilding style of training are probably going to be about 40 to 60 seconds long, somewhere within that range, right? So then if we look at the energy systems that's fueling that, that's going to be your anaerobic lactic system, which is primarily going to be fueled by carbohydrates. So like the problem here is if we're not taking in adequate carbs right away, in simplest terms, that system's going to be short on fuel. You're not going to be able to train as intensely as you need to be able to, to build muscle optimally. And then similarly, like muscle glycogen is like this fuel that our body is using. That is you replenish your muscle glycogen by taking in carbohydrates, right? It's just carbs in stored form. So, um, from that perspective, from a fueling perspective, carbs are super important. Uh, and from a recovery perspective as well, like we know that carbs and cortisol have the inverse relationship. So, Cortisol, the stress hormone that's more, and again, the devil's in the dose. It's not like cortisol is always bad, but like post-workout. And that's like one of the biggest, like we know that to replenish muscle glycogen stores, like as long as we adequate carbs before the next time we train, I don't think we, like for that specific reason, I don't think we have to have a huge bolus of carbs post-workout. But I would say for most people, it'd still be a good idea to have plenty of carbs post-workout from like the nutrition, the nutrient partitioning perspective that you touched on earlier, as well as hey, this will probably reduce cortisol levels after an intense training session where cortisol levels are jacked up. A bolus of carbohydrates is going to help decrease that, which in turn is going to help get your body in this rest or digest state quicker and in a more optimal state to build muscle, basically. So, um, I mean, again, from my perspective, I would say for most people, probably keeping fats around 0.3 to 0.5 grams. Per pound. And it, this varies person to person, just like everything else. But generally, keeping fats around 0.3 to 0.5 grams per pound of body weight getting adequate protein, and then from there, filling the remainder of calories with carbs generally makes sense. Absolutely. So I take a similar approach. I will set, I, I look at everything from a priority system. So when I went over my, my health-centric coaching model, I kind of brought you through my priorities in terms of what things I look at. But let's say when we look at building a diet plan, especially for the, mm -hmm. the accrual of muscle tissue, when I'm thinking about someone going to build muscle, I'm thinking about maximizing muscle skeletal tissue and minimizing fat gain. So from there, it's all about principles. Where are the necessities and there where are the beneficial add-ons? So I look at what are the essential nutrients. The essential nutrients right. are we need amino acids, we need essential amino acids, and we need essential fatty acids. So that's our proteins and our fat sources. Those are two key nutrients that we cannot live without. So as long as we hit a minimum baseline of what's optimal for both of those, then we can build out, and I'm assuming with the question of how they kind of gauge this, it's where would we be leaning more towards when trying to mass, towards more carbohydrate dominant and or fat dominant. That's kind of how you took the question, so I'm gonna go in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally lean towards a higher carb, lower fat approach on massing. Uh, this is because, you know, there's multiple reasons. First of all, fat takes less energy to be converted and stored as fat. You know, it's just easier right. to get converted right into fat storage. Uh, we also see that carbs have a higher thermic effect of feeding, and they also need to go through the process of denoable lipogenesis to actually be converted to fat. So there's a lot of people that will say, well, if you eat too many carbs, you get fat. Yes, but it's not due to the fact that carbs are being uh, converted 
into triglycerides to be stored as fat. Because when we look at the overfeeding studies, approximately one to two percent of the carb, dietary carbohydrates that you take in will be converted to fat tissue. It's actually right. that when you utilize carbohydrates as your predominant energy substrate as a macronutrient, your body ramps up uh, glycogen or carbohydrate metabolism. So you're going through the process of uh, glycolysis, which is great for strength training athletes because we're utilizing, we're anaerobic, you know, um, we're utilizing anaerobic training, which relies off glucose. So when you eat a lot of carbohydrates, your body essentially starts to oxidize or burn more carbohydrates for energy, especially during exercise. So what ends up getting stored is the dietary fat that you take in. It's not the actual carbohydrates. And there's also some data that shows that when you, you increase carbohydrates in terms of overfeeding, it actually causes more spontaneous movement activity. So you're going to burn more of that excess off, um, which limits fat gain. So really when I'm looking at accruing muscle tissue, I'm looking at it from a perspective, what's going to benefit performance most? in terms of what specific performance I'm, I'm doing, and what's also going to limit fat gain and help with recovery the most, and it is carbohydrates. So we have to look at the fact that carbs potentiate the ability of the ner nervous system to push harder in the gym, as well as to recover more adequately. You know, it's going to enhance performance both from a glycogen restoration standpoint, but also from an endurance standpoint. Um, right. You know, we obviously know, like you hit on, carbs replenish intermuscular glycogen stores, which allows for greater volumes of training, as well as a higher frequency of training because a fully, you know, glycogen replenished muscle uh, tissue has a better ability to grow as compared to muscle um, that's depleted of glycogen. We also see that carbohydrates cause a, a release of insulin, which is an anti-catabolic hormone. So it's going to help with limiting muscle protein breakdown. Now this is different than muscle protein synthesis. There is some people that think that insulin actually causes, you know, increases rates of muscle protein synthesis, but it doesn't in physiological ranges, meaning, if you're taking exogenous insulin, like we see with bodybuilders, it actually does increase rates of muscle protein synthesis. But when we actually look at the literature on increasing muscle protein synthesis, actually a bolus of protein between 20 and 25 grams will increase insulin enough to cause a degradation of muscle protein breakdown and maximally uh, stimulate muscle protein synthesis. We don't need the, the ingestion of carbohydrates to help facilitate that. However, it is beneficial from a glycogen replenishment standpoint. Um, so, you know, I would go with leaning towards a higher carb approach, especially because we actually have, I don't know if you look into this, we have well, recent literature that's looked at not only glycogen depletion, because when we look at glycogen depletion studies, we see that it's about a 20 to 40% decrease in glycogen storage after like a hard, high volume weight training session. But there's actually something called localized glycogen uh, depletion that's near the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So what this does is it reduces calcium output which actually limits force production. So think about it. If we have less force production, we have less ability to contract muscle tissue. So it's going to limit performance. So this actually occurs pretty early on in a resistance training bout. So this is why prioritizing carbohydrates is, is pretty important to help replenish that glycogen. Um, so there's so many benefits behind, behind going with a high carbohydrate approach as compared to you know, more of a ketogenic dieting approach for mass building, especially because if anyone, you guys look at any of the meta-analysis or the randomized control studies on utilizing more of a higher fat approach, generally people have a very hard difficulty of actually getting into a surplus and accruing muscle tissue. There's actually, I have yet to see one randomized control study, meaning a highly controlled, you know, well-verified study that's actually showed muscle building potential from a ketogenic diet. And it's not because eating fats is inherently not muscle building or not anabolic. It's because a lot of these people, when they put themselves in a surplus from a ketogenic diet, 
it's really difficult for them to actually get into a surplus and stay at a surplus. So they're losing body fat, but it's because they're going into a deficit. So that's where I really lead with carbohydrates. Carbohydrates also are what, you know, are the sources that have the most micronutrients. So we're looking at fruits, we're looking at vegetables, we're looking at micronutrient dense food sources, which are necessary in the diet in and of itself. So I generally will lead with that higher carb, lower fat uh, approach, especially when, when mass, you know, building tissue is uh, of the highest importance. Absolutely. I'll say that one of the most common things I see with clients who have already been training for a couple of years, like when they start coaching, but they're struggling to like, Hey, I'm kind of skinny fat. I don't look like it. I don't like look like someone who trains as much as I do. Typically they'll say something in their questionnaire about, Hey, I put a major emphasis on getting in my healthy fats. Whereas like typically what that is, is like, we'll see, Hey, they're eating like tons of health foods or like tons of like almond and avocados. And I'm adding like lots of nut butters yeah. and all of those. And it's not like these are bad things per se, but what I found a lot of times in that case is like typically they're not eating enough carbohydrates and often they're under eating uh, protein a bit as well. And I think this, is, I think we've kind of passed this, but I know for a long time, healthy fats were like the thing. Again, I think the industry's kind of shifted past that, but still like there's, a, or even from like the paleo movement, I think that that's partially a product of that as well. Um, and that's a very common thing I see and it's interesting to where like, okay, so you're eating like, 150 grams of fat a day. We have like super low carbs and protein is at like 0.6 grams per pound of body weight. Right. And it is, it is interesting too, like how, and that's like, as a new client coming in, that's great because it's, Hey, that's such low hanging fruit right away. You're going to feel so much better in your training. And you're going to see some pretty dramatic body composition shifts, but kind of just an interesting anecdote there. Absolutely. No, I, I have a lot of people that come to me and they have a very similar approach and, and another thing that's actually a myth that I don't know where this comes from. I think it's more of like an anecdotal thing, but a lot of people think that saturated fat is linked to higher testosterone production. And we don't see that anywhere in the literature. Really? So people will say red meats will lead to higher testosterone levels. We, we don't see that. We see that in a deficit of fat. So meaning if you are deficient, especially in central fatty acids, that you could have lower testosterone levels. But we also see that just in an energy deficit in and of itself, and we also see that in, in controlled trials where they're on a high fat, moderate uh, protein and low carb approach because of the cortisol to the testosterone ratio actually lowers testosterone production. So it's usually due to low energy availability, not due to a lack of fat. But there are a lot of people I see promote this, especially in like the carnivore sphere, that if you eat more red meat, you're going to increase your testosterone. We just don't see that in the literature. Like we know that there's a baseline level of fats that are needed to secrete hormones because obviously most of our hormones come from cholesterol and we also need you know healthy fats to help with the ingestion and assimilation of fat soluble vitamins a d e and k but we don't see anything directly correlated it's not like if you eat higher amounts of red meat you're going to have higher levels of testosterone and even if we did what people need to realize is that higher levels of testosterone within the physiological so natural ranges which is around three to 900 nanograms per deciliter, they're not correlated well with higher increases in lean body mass. We really see that it's, it's about androgen receptor density. And actually, Stu Phillips published a, a, a paper earlier this year about that. It's those that have the greatest amount of androgen receptor density, meaning there are more sensitive to testosterone. So there actually is a large cohort of individuals that have lower to, you know, serum testosterone levels, but they have more androgen receptors. So they're more sensitive to that testosterone and they're, they build more muscle, they're you know, more of what, quote unquote, a responder to resistance training than others with higher, free to, uh, higher 
uh, serum testosterone levels, however, have in lower androgen receptors. So we have to realize that like a lot of times people are like extrapolating things. They're saying, well, healthy fats are good for testosterone. So healthy fats, you know, red meat must be good for testosterone hormones, must increase testosterone, must increase muscle building. That isn't the case. A lot of times people are taking mechanistic data and looking at it and saying and, and bringing out correlations and trying to make them causations. So interesting. I know with TRT, a lot of times you'll like, I know a lot of dudes my age that it's like, hey, um, my testosterone is like towards the lower end of the range. I get on TRT just and I'm going to get just fucking yacked from this, right? Whereas unfortunately, again, you're still within like that physiological normal range. Typically, that's not what we see happen, correct? No. So I actually have a lot of clients that are on TRT. And there are guys that have a hyper responsiveness to it, but generally they just feel better. So really a lot of times what I would link it back to is, yeah, their training increased because they felt so terrible previously. If you're at Mm -hmm. 200 nanograms per deciliter and you're in your early thirties, you're substantially below what a guy in, you know, their early thirties would be at. And we see that one in four males actually register as having low testosterone being hypogonadal if they take a blood test. So, you know, that's 25% of males over the age of 30. That's a pretty high percentage. So, you know, just being able to have better energy levels, less fatigue, better recoverability, they're just feeling like people their age that have normal testosterone levels feel. So they might be able to accrue more muscle tissue, but it was because they were subpar before. So it's almost like taking an intermediate training that's been under consuming protein and then putting them at that 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilogram and then gaining a bunch of new tissue. Yes, protein is one of the lead factors in which caused that growth. But if they had been utilizing that same approach three years prior when they started training, they wouldn't automatically year three to year five of their, their training, um, you know, career, they wouldn't have gained 10 or 20 pounds just from eating protein. I mean, it's because they lacked something and then they made up for it with deficiency. We see the same thing with like selenium, iodine, zinc with, with thyroid levels. If someone's deficient in zinc, selenium, uh, uh, like tyrosine, all these necessary cofactors that help with the conversion of T4 to metabolically active T3, they will see an upregulation in your thyroid production. But if you're at a normal level and you're still hypothyroid, adding more into the system is not going to cause your thyroid to output more thyroid hormone. It's something that you, right. you're going to need to address in other methods or other you know, uh, manners. Okay. Okay. That makes complete sense. Um, next question I have for you, dude, I tend to do good all day on my diet until I get home from work in the gym. And once I'm relaxing at night, watching TV or Netflix, every night I find myself either eating more than I want to, or eating off plan, despite having been perfect all day long. What can I do to stop this? Okay. So first thing that I want to hit on in this is we need to stop aiming for perfection and we need to aim for consistency. So if you're perfect all day and, and you're really in your mind, you're, you're, perfect on your plan, it might be that you're over-restricting yourself during the day. That's causing that at night. But say you just, you, you know, I'm kind of reading into the verbiage that you use. This is really common. Many of us try to multitask in pretty much everything we do, especially when we're eating. So right. what I find most common with clients that I help work through this is what, what I call distracted eating. So they're doing things like watching TV. They're on their phone. They're uh, on the internet. They're watching Netflix. They're driving while they're eating or they're scrolling social media. And these are all examples of distracted eating behaviors. And now the big issue with this is that it causes distracted eating generally leads to what's called mindless eating. So we actually have, there was a meta-analysis conducted in uh, 2012 
that looked at 24 studies on distracted eating. And what they saw was that distracted eating leads to dysregulated hunger cue signals so that their satiety was skewed as a result of what they were doing while they were eating. So they saw that eating while being distracted actually led to less of a satiety effect during the meal. You know, so they weren't feeling as full from the meal itself, as well as higher intakes you know, in that meal itself and then throughout the rest of the day due to their satiety levels being skewed. So it's almost like you sat down to eat a meal, but you were watching TV. And we've all done this where um, we're watching something and it's like you didn't even realize the meal ended or you keep eating because you're not even realizing how much you're eating. And then also your brain doesn't register that you've eaten that much. So we don't eat based off calories. It's not like you know, you had a 500 calorie meal and your body feels full because of that. It feels full right. because of different sensory perceptions, because of volume metrics, which include like the food volume, the stretch receptors in your stomach, all those different types of things. But if you're, you know, not paying attention to your food and you're mindlessly eating, your body's not getting those same feedback mechanisms that you're actually eating the, the portion that you are. So a lot of times my clients don't understand this. And this is where I really find this very prevalent at night. Because you get mm-hmm. home from a long day and you, you want to de-stress and you want to watch Netflix or your favorite show. And, you know, a lot of times people don't even realize they do this. So they're distracted, but they're not even aware of it. So when I, when I speak with this to clients, you know, I, I find that they're going over and they'll say, you know, I don't know what it is. You know, I'm, I'm great on my diet all day. You know, I have people that say very similar things. You know, I'll, I'll ask them that, you know, this specific question. I always do this for clients. What is the time that you consume the most amount of popcorn? I'll ask them that question. And almost, I'll tell you, 99% of the time, they say that it's at a movie. And they, you know, they mm-hmm. cut through a massive size of buttered popcorn without even realizing. And usually went back for more. And they didn't, you know, until I brought that up to them, I said, why do you think you did that? You think you didn't get full with that 1,000 or 2,000 calories of popcorn? Or do you think it was right. because you were so enthralled in the movie? And every time they say no, it was because, you know, I was so busy watching the movie and I was... You know, they never say distracted. They, were, they say they were entertained, but I make them aware of the fact that they were distracted. And the same thing happens in your living room. You know I mean, when you're eating dinner, mm-hmm. you're eating more than you realize that you're consuming and you're not even getting the benefit of feeling this, the satiation from it. So that's where we need to look at um, implementing something called mindful eating into their daily routine so that, you know, that they actually feel full from the meal itself and are able to better gauge the amount of intake that they're taking in. Because this individual is saying that, all day they're fine. So all day when they're concentrating on their meals and they're not at home and they're not watching stuff, they're perfectly fine on their meal plan. However, when it comes to night, they're blowing out their calories and it's, it's essentially derailing them from their goals. So by simply you know, focusing more on that meal and being more mindful, and instead of doing multiple things at the same time, you're going to feel more full from the meal itself. You're going to be better able to stick to your calorie allotment. And then also you're not going to feel that guilt that you're obviously feeling. We have to remember that food isn't just fuel, but it's also for enjoyment. But the only way we can truly enjoy food, because a lot of people will come back to me and say, well, that's like part of my entertainment. That's all well and good. I'm not trying to take Netflix from you or a nice you know, meal with your family. However, that's where I encourage you to sit down at a dinner table with your friends, with your family, with your loved ones, and have you know, a, a mindful meal where you enjoy it and you honor your, your body and what it wants in terms of food content. But also you pay attention and live in the moment so that you not only improve your relationship with food, but you better regulate your appetite and adhere to your diet. So there's like huge things, you know, I'm always talking about mindful eating with uh, clients, like, you know, simple things, put the distractions away, put your phone away, stop looking at the internet, stop looking at your computer, stop looking at email, stop trying to multitask when you're eating. 
Um, things like, you know, chewing slower. We've seen in literature that just simply chewing slower and taking um, more bites per chew has been linked to less, um, less food intake or less calorie intake, you know, using smaller silverware or putting your fork down in between bites. So this the slowing down and just being more mindful is going to allow you to have better satiety signals, better regulation of your appetite so that you stop overeating and stop with this, you know, this pattern where you're good all day and you nail it. And then all of a sudden at night, you're just, you know, essentially derailing all the progress that you worked all day for. And I see that quite commonly. I see that, especially on weekends, people do that all the time. And it's, it's not only due to lack of awareness, but it's due to being mindless. It's due to being distracted. It's just not due to being in the moment and actually fully taking in all the sensory aspects, all the visual aspects and, and all the other aspects of food besides just throwing it down your gullet. Absolutely, man. And uh, mindfulness, somebody you touched on a lot. And as cliche as it is, it does come down to awareness in this case, right? Like, um, typically how I approach this is first and foremost, you want to try to take it out of the realm of the mindless. So for example, like, I know I talked with the client the other day about, hey, I'm just like sitting in front of my TV at night and I'll just down so much popcorn. So like, hey, okay, is there a snack like that that you typically struggle with? Let's start by what if you split that bag of popcorn up into like a bunch of different little serving size baggies, right? Or like the same thing goes with wine, where it's like, oh shit, I just finished like three fourths of a bottle of wine. I've had clients, okay, so let's buy, because you can actually buy smaller bottles of wine that are like one to one and a half serving sizes. So then I'll, it's like, oh geez, okay, I have to go open another bottle of wine, now another one. Like little things like that, like how can we just make you a little bit more aware of what you're doing? Or like, I know I talk to a lot of parents where it's, hey, it's my kid's food. I'm always catching myself like picking at their food. So then we'll talk through, okay, so like, when does this commonly happen? Like maybe it's when they get home from school at 4 p.m. and I'm making them a snack. Okay, so like at 4 p.m. I want you to set a reminder to just pop in a piece of gum, right? And then as simple as it is, it's okay. You're not gonna just grab that and like, okay, I'm eat my gum and this sandwich together. That's disgusting, right? It's just like a little, little, a little, little thing that takes it out of like, you have to think about what you're doing, right? Or even I know, we sometimes we'll dig deep into like, okay, when you go into your kitchen, what are the first foods you see? Is it easiest for you to like dig into that container of peanut butter filled pretzels? Or is it like you have a bowl of fruit on the counter and like your chips and peanut butter pretzels, et cetera. Those are somewhere you have to like get up on a stool and you actively have to work to get it down. I, I love James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Basically it's mm-hmm. like the habits that we don't want to take part. We don't want to partake in. Let's make that a little bit harder. And the things we want to do, let's just make that a little bit easier. So it is as simple as like, what do you immediately see versus like these things that you want to restrict yourself on a little bit more. Let's just put that somewhere where it's just a little bit more challenging. And you just have to think about it a little bit more. Um, And then finally, I would say sometimes this is tied to an emotion. So a lot of times it's very helpful. I found a dig in with clients to what we call an if-then statement. So first, can we identify that like, hey, every time you're super stressed, you go eat. Or every time you're angry, you eat. Okay, so first, can we identify like what this emotion is that's causing this? Now from there, then we can set up this if-then statement. So if I get the urge to, or if I feel angry, the next thing I do is whatever, I go for a five-minute walk. I take five deep breaths. I set a three-minute timer on my phone, whatever it may be. And then after that, if I'm still hungry, cool, I can eat. But again, like typically people will kind of like, okay, I'm not actually hungry right now. I'm just stressed or I'm angry or whatever it is. And that's what's driving me. Those are a couple of things I found pretty helpful in that regard. No, I like that a lot. I'm, I'm big into 
looking into the psychology and realizing, making clients realize that especially cravings are more psychological than they are physiological. There was like a lot of mysticism or myth around cravings and the fact that a lot of people thought, you know, were under the assumption that cravings were like a physiological mechanism, meaning that they were uh, a need for something or they, they signaled a nutrient deficiency. And we'll often hear that with women that crave chocolate when they, they're going through pregnancy. And, um, you know, if we look at like, if you actually look into the research behind that, that's common in the States. But if you look at women in Spain, the number one thing that they report, um, women that are pregnant report craving is actually chicken. It's something savory. It, it shows really? that it's not a... It's not a physiological mechanism. We can't say women in the States are physiologically different during pregnancy than women in Spain. They're from the same species, same, you know, biological sex, everything. However, it's our culture. So in the States, we're a culture more about sweet. In, in Spain, obviously, it's more about savory. So it shows that it's not a physiological mechanism. It's a psychological one. It's that you saw your mom or other women around you when they were going through their menstrual cycle where they were going through pregnancy and they were craving chocolates and an ice cream. And so that became mm -hmm. a norm. So when you didn't feel well during those feeling during those periods, whether it be your cycle or it be during pregnancy, you reach for those same things for comfort. It's a physiological, it's a psychological thing. So it's really important to dig deep. And I really try to get my clients to realize, is this physiological hunger? Is this a sign my body needs actual nutrients and energy? Or is this, you know, psychological hunger, meaning I'm bored, I'm stressed, I have some emotions going on. You know, I'm trying to cope with something. I'm trying to, um, you know, get away from something. I'm trying to escape a certain emotion. And I also like what you hit on with the effort barriers. I like doing that with clients as well. You know, with certain items, if it's a tr an honest trigger with someone that I've been dealing with that have binge eating tendencies, I'll just have them keep it out of the house so that they have to go get it. And I'll tell them, listen, if there are certain items that you know trigger you, keep them out of your house if possible. If, you know, if they're a parent and stuff, and they have to keep certain things that do trigger them in their house for their children or for their spouse, then we hide them into different areas. We can put them in a lock drawer. We can put them in a cupboard that they don't go to. We can put them in the back of their, their freezer, something of that sort, just to make there's an, an effort barrier there where you have to go out of your way to get that. And usually just having that time where you're having to go through changes or having to go through putting in some effort and putting in some time to you know, actually get that item and prepare it gives you enough time to register. Listen, I don't need this item. I want this item. This is a desire, not a necessity. And it usually gives them enough time to really rethink their, their decision as to whether, is this worth it or not? So it's, it's a big thing on realizing, is this decision going to push me further, you know, further away from my goals or closer to my goals? And is it worth it in the moment? Am I dealing with that much stress that I need to cope with this? Are there other strategies that I could utilize, whether it be listening to music, listening to an audiobook, going on a walk, are there other more productive um, activities that I could be replacing this emotional bout of eating with that are going to move me closer to my goals? And often when I have clients that are aware of these things and that they have these triggers, these habits, and these behaviors, we're able to modify and adjust them and, and usually replace habits because we can't just get rid of habits. We need to replace them with something else. There's got to be something else habitual that you put within your life so that it isn't just that you have this glaring, you know, hole that's missing it's you have something else so a lot of people it is you know like a 10 minute walk that i have them do or maybe it's a guided meditation or there's many methods to elicit a better response so instead of going to that food or that food item that really causes you that dopamine release you go to another more productive outlet for that absolutely 
Uh, it's funny you mentioned to the women in Spain craving chicken because I know pregnant women that I've worked with, it is always the hardest thing is to get them to eat protein for whatever reason. And I've only ever worked with pregnant women in the US. Actually, no, that's not true. One in Latvia. Um, but it's always like protein sounds disgusting, protein sounds disgusting. So I guess I have a little bit more something now to kind of throw back. <laughs> These women in Spain are crushing <laughs> protein. So um, anyways, man, I've taken up a lot of your time. I know that you got to run here pretty quickly and I have another call coming up here shortly as well. But you crushed us, dude. Per usual, I'll link up where everyone can find you, hit you up for any questions they have in the show notes. I know we still have a couple questions to get through here. Um, so I'll have to hop on another one of these before long. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you know I'm always up to it. Keep me posted and we will definitely get it planned. Absolutely. Thank you again for being here, man.